Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. This is the third episode in a short series of the Living Leadership Podcast, in which we're considering leadership lessons from John the Baptist. The content is abridged and adapted from my book, Clarion Call, Finding Joy in Christ with John the Baptist. In the last episode, we explored the significance of the fact that John confessed that he was not the Christ. I suggested that our self-awareness as ministers of the gospel must begin with knowing that we are not the Christ, not the Saviour and not the Lord. And in this, John is a brilliant example. So let's be content to be voices in the wilderness. In this episode, I want to pick up a more positive note. Rather than thinking about who we are not, let's focus on who Jesus is. This episode is simply entitled Mightier Than I. Let's hear some of John the Baptist's words as recorded in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, his sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when did anyone last carry your shoes for you? Maybe when you were a child, your parents held them so you could paddle on the seashore and feel the sand between your toes. Or perhaps your spouse or a friend did the same thing more recently. Maybe it was in less pleasant circumstances, like someone carrying them from the hospital where you were admitted as an emergency. Whichever it was, the experience probably wasn't particularly unpleasant for the shoe bearer. If you live, like me, in a developed country, your footwear wasn't probably especially dirty. You're a world away from first century Judea. A closer parallel might be when someone steps in something unpleasant and the only way to get it out of the grooves in the shoe's soles is by scrubbing. That's a necessary job and not one many people would queue up for, although I've discovered it's a core function of parenthood. And the world that John and Jesus inhabited had few proper roads and limited public sanitation. Streets were muddy and often littered with the waste of various animals. The closest I came to that was in India in the late 1990s, walking through the side streets of a rural town as pigs snuffled in open drains, sloshing through unmentionables. The image and associated smells run through my head as I think about the realities of first century Galilee and Judea. Except, of course, without the pigs, in Jewish areas at least. So in the ranking of servant tasks, carrying a person's sandals was close to the same task Jesus performed for his disciples, according to John chapter 13, when he offered to wash their feet. Of course, Simon Peter led the disciples' protests on that occasion. Why? Because that job was reserved for the lowest servants in a wealthy household for obvious reasons, the same servants who may have carried their master's sandals. So in this passage, John is positioning himself as the lowest of servants. 
Or perhaps he's not even claiming that position. Maybe he's saying he's, he's not even worthy to be the one who serves that foot-washing servant by removing the sandals for him. Anyway, two other Gospels record a slightly different but related saying of John, which might be more familiar, in which he says he's unworthy to loosen the straps of Jesus' sandals. You get the point. John is clearly saying that Jesus is so much greater than him that John deserves no association with Jesus whatsoever. Now, when we start from that position, any service for Jesus is revealed as what it really is, a gift of pure grace. How easily we slip into thinking that we've a right to serve in certain ways because we are gifted or have proven ourselves faithful or have won the right through sacrifice. All of those thoughts are deceptions of the evil one. We have no right to serve in even the most menial ways. It is all joy. And it's this conviction that led John to contrast the type of baptism Jesus would perform with his own baptisms in the River Jordan, or rather the difference between those baptisms was what made John realise how much greater Jesus was. John baptised with water. Anyone could do that. But the baptism Jesus would perform was something only he could do. He would baptise with the Spirit and with fire. Now it should be obvious that no ordinary human being could do either of those things. If you tried to immerse someone in fire, you would be burnt up before they ever got in alongside you. And you really can't contain or control the Spirit, who is nothing less than the person of God. Jesus' baptism was going to be something completely new, something only he could do. But what are we to understand by baptism in the Spirit and fire? Well, perhaps the greatest hermeneutical question facing us is whether John is speaking of one baptism or two. It's possible that there's just one baptism in view in the Spirit and fire. Although the Spirit is more often symbolised in Scripture by water, he's also sometimes likened to fire. Especially in Acts 2, when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there were tongues of fire appearing on people's heads, clearly uh, symbolising or expressing the presence of the Spirit. So maybe this is one baptism in the Spirit who is like fire. Now, there may be a potential problem with that idea, but it's also reinforced as we read on through uh, the passage we've just read, because, of course, John continues to use an image involving fire, which is clearly about judgment. Fire was used by first century farmers to burn up the chaff that was separated from the grain through the process of winnowing. Indeed, fire is commonly used to describe judgment in Scripture. Fire from heaven consumed sinful cities in Genesis 19, rebel Israelites in Numbers 11, and the soldiers of idolatrous kings in 2 Kings chapter 1. Unquenchable fire vividly describes eternal punishment, according to Mark 9, 44 and 48. And of course, the second death, meaning the final judgment that separates people from God eternally, is synonymous with being cast into or immersed in the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Even God's judgment of the works of believers is described in terms of things that are unworthy being burned up in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. So that might seem to 
carry through with the idea that the fire in this baptism is the spirit, but the spirit is the agent of judgment. But of course, in John's farming image, there is also the harvest that is brought in. And so whether John realised it or not, when he spoke these words, baptism in fire doesn't seem to be the same thing as baptism in the spirit. Now, again, I want to be careful because we need to distinguish between the Spirit's work in judgment of those who are non-repentant and the gathering in of the harvest. And of course, we understand, which John may not have, that the Spirit's work for those who are repentant is the transformation of their lives. But you might say, well, even that transformation involves the Spirit working like a purifying fire, bringing judgment on all that is unholy in us. And that might be so. But still, there's clearly a difference between the baptism in fire that equates to being cast into the lake of fire, that's the destiny of non-believers, and the baptism in the spirit that comes to those who are believers in Christ, which is life-giving, transformative, and restorative. So in this phrase, baptism in the fire and uh, in the spirit and in fire, perhaps there is a stark choice between two options, either baptism in the spirit now, conversion, or baptism in fire in the final judgment, condemnation. And importantly, though, Jesus is the agent of both. He's the judge and the saviour. He is the one who carries out both baptism. And he can be that because on the cross, he experienced his own baptism of fire when he took God's wrath against our sin. Now, as we think about baptism in the Spirit, I want to acknowledge that there are varied views among Christians and perhaps among listeners to this podcast about baptism in the Spirit, especially whether it's synonymous with conversion or something that can happen sometime after becoming a believer, and whether it is always indicated by speaking in tongues. And I don't really want to comment on those questions in this episode. Whatever answer we come to about those questions, though, I'm sure we can agree that the Spirit is the agent of transformation in our lives. He's the one who includes us in the family of God and causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. He's the one who assures us of salvation and seals us for the day of Christ. He empowers us and equips us for service, and he changes us into the likeness of Christ as his fruit grows in us. John could not control or manipulate the Holy Spirit. He had no power to impart him. He, like we, could say the Spirit blows wherever he will. But Jesus could impart the Spirit. You, like John, cannot control or manipulate the Spirit, though sometimes I worry that we pray as if we think we could. Only Jesus could impart him. And only through faith in Jesus can his work proceed in the life of a person. And that truth is both profoundly humbling and immensely encouraging for the minister. We're humbled by the realisation that we can't bring about real, lasting change in a person's life. We're utterly dependent on the Spirit to do that. But we're encouraged by the fact that he can do it, even in the most apparently hopeless of situations. Sometimes he does it now, at least in part, but he will bring that work to completion when Christ returns. 
Sometimes we see the victory over sin, the transformation of an ingrained habit in a person's life now. And sometimes we long for that to come as we walk with them through the temptations and struggles. But in all of this, we have confidence because we know that the Spirit will do his work. And in that, we find strength to continue walking with people through chronic pastoral needs as reminders of the gracious presence of God the Spirit. John knew that Jesus alone could impart the Spirit, and this was why he understood himself to be a servant, not even worthy to unloose his sandals or carry his shoes. Sometimes I wish we could change our terminology around Christian leadership. For starters, I think we should use the word leader a lot less in favour of words that are less loaded with values and assumptions from our culture. We might prefer words like minister and pastor. But even there, I wish we weren't so ready to forget what they actually mean. Shepherd may be more helpful than pastor. When it comes to the word minister, then I certainly think it's always worth remembering what it means. Servant. I think I notice this especially with the related word ministry. Sometimes I speak of my ministry and then, as we say in Northern Ireland, I catch myself on. I don't have a ministry as if there was a position or office or task that belonged to me. It's my ministry and don't you touch it. No, I'm a servant who gets to serve. What I do in the name of Jesus is service for him, for the gospel and for other people for his sake. I should say, by the way, I'm not really as fussy about words as this makes me sound. I'm not going to fall out with you if you talk about your ministry. I might even use that phrase myself. But let's remember it is shorthand for the service that we, unworthy as we are, get to do for Jesus because of his grace. Now, this idea of service probably seems foreign to our understanding. It's not something we, we find around us commonly. But it's not that long since most middle class families in the Western world employed one or more servants, either live in servants or a day servant who came in to clean the house and do other tasks. It's only really after World War II, uh, with the advent of affordable labour saving devices, that people didn't need that. Nowadays in the UK, it's only royals and aristocrats, nouveau riche pop stars, and millionaire business people who still employ servants. Although since the 1980s onwards, there has been a new form of domestic service. A growing number of middle class people, especially in households with two working adults, pay someone to do some housework usually cleaning, washing laundry, ironing or gardening. But of course, we don't think about those people as servants, they're self-employed workers or agency employees. But in other parts of the world, it's different. One of many adjustments I had to make when I first started visiting my wife's home country in Malaysia was how many people on relatively modest incomes have live-in maids, usually from other Southeast Asian countries with lower wage economies. There was nothing illegal or immoral about that practice, but it took some getting used to. And of course, it always carries a risk of abuse. Sadly, many people in the world today, even in the UK, and there was a case in the news recently, are trapped 
in menial service, trafficked or tricked from their homes and forced into labour, or worse, locally or in another country. Such issues should be the subject of our prayers and actions. We should be campaigning, giving and volunteering with charities that can bring justice and restoration to the victims of modern slavery. But by and large, service, whether forced or willing, is not something that we see every day. And perhaps our lack of familiarity with domestic service makes it harder for us to understand what it means for us to be servants in God's household. We're accustomed to thinking that everyone is equal. Uh, Of course, that's an idea with rich biblical roots. But as a result, we struggle to lower ourselves to the position of serving. We expect employment to be surrounded with rights, and that's all well and good. But when we encounter Jesus, we're not dealing with another equal person. And the idea of rights seems strangely deficient. We stand face to face with the all-surpassing one who is mightier than us. The one who can baptise in the spirit and in fire. And we've no option but to say with John that we are unworthy even to loosen his laces, let alone carry his shoes. We begin to relate to him not on the basis of rights, but of delight at the very idea that he might beckon us to come close and grant us the privilege of serving him. The joy of discovering that the one before whom we feel utterly unworthy lifts our hanging heads and calls us to follow closely. So we ought to take pride in being called servants, ministers. And there's a connection, of course, between this servant stance and the baptism in the spirit that John said Jesus would bring. We can't say, I think, that John was baptised in the spirit. He lived before Pentecost, which is when the baptism in the spirit happened or began. But the spirit filled him from before his birth, so the angel said to his father. And of course, the spirit did in John what he always does, leading him to humility of heart and sincerity of speech. Above all, the Spirit led John to Jesus, and he does that still. As Jesus said himself to his apostles in the upper room, the Spirit always glorifies Jesus, John 16.4. The Spirit is the one, as we read in 2 Corinthians, who shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and who transforms us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus as we continue to gaze on his glory. All of this is implicit in the Spirit's most common title, the Holy Spirit. We're so familiar with it that we might fail to recognise its significance. It means he's the Spirit of holiness and the Spirit who sanctifies. Have a look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He makes us holy, setting us apart from sin and unto God, to belong to God and to serve his purpose. We are God's saints, his holy people. We're all anointed by the Spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 1, and anointing is always for service. In the Old Testament, as a prophet, a priest or a king, the Spirit makes us servants. And as he did in the life of John the Baptist, 
The Spirit leads us into humble adoration for the Lord Jesus and then directs our hands and feet to service. So let me ask you, is your service for God what you might call your ministry? Is it Spirit-filled and Spirit-shaped? How would you know if it is? Well, is your ministry firmly and relentlessly focused on Jesus? And are you and anyone who is responding to your ministry becoming more like Jesus? That's what God desires in you. Holiness. How tragic it will be on the final day to see how much of what has been done in the name of Jesus is burned up in the fire. And how wonderful it will be to see that whatever was built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, every word of faithful testimony to his lordship, in which he was revealed for people to gaze on every act of service that was done gladly for his glory. All of these turn out to be gold, silver and precious stones. And if we are going to contribute into the eternal treasure house of God, we'd better get out of the way and let people see Jesus. Whatever name you have, whatever reputation, whatever achievements and positions, never forget that you are unworthy in yourself to even carry Jesus' shoes. It's all grace. And that you are incapable in yourself to bring anyone to Jesus. That is all by the Spirit. Let me pray. Father God, I deserve to face hellfire. But instead you gave me your life-giving, transforming, restorative Spirit. I thank you for his cleansing and life-giving work, and I pray that the Spirit's work would continue in me. May he fill me, and may I listen to his leading so I can serve you and make Jesus known. Change my character to become like Jesus, and use my hands and feet to do your work in the world. May I learn to see Jesus as he truly is in beauty and majesty, and myself as his servant, this day and every day. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.